Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, Doctor. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you, Father. Good to have you with us. So um, just to rewind just a little bit. So I started with, we started the first time I was here with what is a human person? And they had reason and faith. Um, and this, this last one, I'm going to talk more about, it's basically political philosophy, but it's um, how we, given that now we kind of have a sense of how we conceive of the individual, how do we conceive of our life together, particularly our political life together, our life in community, deciding what to do <laughs> and who should rule over us and what we should um, spend our money on, what we should do as citizens um, or as just people in a community. Um, so I'm going to be talking about liberty and what it means and then how our conception of the self relates to the conception of we have of our political life together. And then we'll go forward and, and see if we can make progress with that. So I'm gonna start by opening up um, just a, a simple question. How do you define liberty or how do you define freedom? I'll give you a couple seconds to think about that. And then if anyone wants to throw an answer out there to how, how either how you define freedom or how you think people commonly define freedom. So I'll just chime in anyway. So it's like, you know, freedom is uh, both freedom of action and freedom of thought, but also you have responsibilities. So the word freedom has that dual meaning to it, right? You're not really free free. You have responsibilities to also uh, fulfill in order to enjoy the freedoms that you would otherwise not have, right? It's a duality. Okay. Um, we have a couple of answers coming in here. Uh, Robin says properly, the ability to choose the good. Uh, someone else said liberty is the freedom to do what we ought. Uh, and then someone else said commonly the ability to do what I want. Perfect. So we got it all out there. I can go from there. So yes, there are these two definitions of freedom historically, and they seem very antithetical to one another. Um, and, and both of those were just mentioned. Um, so one which is very familiar in um, a liberal political state is the freedom is basically, or liberty, is being able to do what you want with certain constraints, as long as you don't hurt others, basically, or injure them or keep them from pursuing their freedom. And then there's this other definition of freedom or liberty, which I also heard there, which is freedom is the ability to do what you're made to do, to do what you ought to do, to do what you owe to God, and having the freedom from, from your own, not being a slave to your own desires and your own passions and, your, and sin, so that you're able to do those things. And also being free in the sense that no one externally is preventing you from doing what you ought to do and what you owe to God. 
one of my favorite things to teach when I was a professor of American history was teaching about the Puritans, which is where you start with a class on American intellectual history. And it just blew undergraduates' minds everywhere I taught that, because they had this narrative of everyone came to this country seeking liberty, and they're thinking that modern conception of liberty, right? So it blew their minds, and I would tell them, no, the Puritans didn't come here to seek the liberty to do what they wanted to do without being persecuted. They came here for a totally different kind of liberty, the liberty to order their community to the good um, so they could give to God what they believed they owed God, which involved, among other things, keeping members of their community from doing what they wanted a lot of the time. <laughs> so these, it, this was a concept of liberty that many people had never heard of by the time I got to college. So historically speaking and philosophically speaking, there are these two um, competing conceptions of liberty. Um, I mean, let's, let's say a little bit about, more about these before I tell the story of how they diverge and, and, and where we're going to go with this. If we believe that liberty is doing what you want to do, following the desires of the self to the, without hurting other people, then the rights of the self come before the question of what is right or good. There's, a, there's the autonomous self and its rights is prior to, more fundamental to the question of, well, what is it you actually want to do? More prior is prior to ends. So there's nothing really more fundamental than the self and its rights. If you've had the other definition of liberty, which is the classical definition of liberty, is being what you being free to to do what you ought to do, then the question, of course, of what you ought to do is first. So first comes the good. The primary thing is the good, and then that later you can talk about rights and duties. So but first you have to determine what it is that people ought to do. What is the good of human life and human society? So again, this is not just a philosophical divide, although obviously it is. It's, it's a historical divide. It's obviously not just, also it's not a present, just a present day divide. There's a story to it. So I'm gonna tell that story briefly. I've been talking about the history and philosophy and the reasons from this change from one kind of liberty to another and talk about what the implications of, of that are for how we view ourselves and how we view our, our life together in community. I wanna say something at the beginning. This talk doesn't exactly follow the pattern of the previous talk, and to some extent the, the one before that too. There was a story, especially the last talk of, we used to get this right, and then it got confused. That's not exactly what I'm saying here. This is much more complicated. In fact, if there are any young people out there who are trying to find out what they might want to do in academia and like political philosophy, can I just put out a brief cry? We need Catholic political philosophers because there's a lot to figure out here. This is one reason I wanted to end on this subject because it's not so cut and dry. It's not like, this is how Catholics see this. This is how we should see this. There are a lot of open questions here to explore. So I encourage you to read further and think further and practice further in this topic because as you'll notice as I talk about this classical conception of liberty it has a big weakness <laughs> given our current um, state and in, in, in this world which is that it doesn't have a clear way to make make room for peaceful pluralism that is um, having peace with people whom you just do not agree with about what the good is um, and yet the modern conception of liberty as we'll see is also deeply flawed and then it doesn't make room for that full substantive use of reason we talked about um, last week um, for the pursuit of the common good and it, it there are indications that eventually leads to um, social decay and tyranny which is, is a big negative so this issue that I'm getting at today, I'm gonna to argue that it's really at the heart of where we are now as a society. We've gotta be thinking about it. We're coming up against the limits of a liberal polity, and yet um, we can't just go back in time. So um, the way forward is a really interesting conversation right now, and I invite you to that conversation. So today I'm giving you sort of a, 
a run up, the story behind that conversation and up to where we are today that I think should hopefully be helpful. First, what is this classical conception of liberty? Where does it come from? Remember I talked about Aristotle being the philosopher for a really long time? He really is on this subject. So Aristotle establishes the tradition of political philosophy in the West and it's, it holds for a very long time. So I'm gonna start with Aristotle again. Particularly, this is related to his politics and his Nicomachean ethics, which are both basically started as, um, as far as we know, lectures or instruction for young men who are going to become leaders. So he's teaching them about liberty, about what it means to be worthy of leadership because you are not a slave to your passions. And he begins both books with the same idea, which I need to hone in on. This is how he begins politics. Book one, chapter one. Every state is a community of some kind, and every community is established with a view to some good. And then begin, beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, every art and inquiry, and similarly, every action and intentional choice is held to aim at some good. And the reason he's starting here with everything aims to some good is that you can't begin, you can't evaluate anything, you can't know if something is good unless you know what it's for. What is it aimed at? If I were to ask you, for instance, what makes a good knife? How do you answer that question? What's a good knife? It's a very simple question. What can a good knife do? It cuts, it's sharp, it's pointy. We know what a knife is for, so answering the question what a good knife is is really not complicated, right? It cuts, it does its job, right? Now, if I were to ask you, and I'm not going to, but if I were to ask you what's a good person, or what's a good government, most people are not, gonna think of that as the same sort of question. It's gonna involve a lot more, uh, a lot more hemming and hawing, a lot more, I there are different standards, I can go to my tradition, I, but for Aristotle, it helps to realize this is exactly the same sort of question. If you're gonna talk about a, human, a knife, you need to ask if whether or not it's good, you first need to ask what it's for. If I handed you a random appliance, you didn't know what it was, and you said, is this a good jigglebilic? I'd have to first ask, what is that thing for, right, to determine. It's the same exact thing for Aristotle with people and with human societies, with human governments. And the reverse is true. If you call something good or someone good, you are saying something, you're implying what it is that they are for as a human being or as a thing or as an organization. Um, I don't know if you all are familiar with the four causes in Aristotle. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time with this. I don't have time for it to go into it in depth. But just really briefly, because I've brought up the table thing with his metaphysics before, and this is an essential part of his metaphysics, Aristotle thinks there are four causes to anything, which means there are four questions that you need to answer in order to account for its existence. I'm going to go with a table, but it, they're called, these are true for anything in Aristotle. Um, so they are material, efficient, formal, and final. So if I'm going to take a table, the material cause is what it's made of. It's stuff. It's wood, maybe. Um, efficient is the process of bringing it to be. Who made it? Who enacted the process? How does it? How did it like get going and, and come to be made? So the table is the carpenter or the factory, whoever made the table. The formal cause is its form, right? What makes? What gives? What is the um, the shape, the design that makes it function as a table? We've already talked about form. Final cause is the king of causes. It's the cause of causes in Aristotle, and because it determines all the others, it gives structure to the rest, and it's what it's for, right? So efficient causation in particular makes no sense without final causation because someone has to have a goal in mind in order to make a table. 
and you're going to you're going to choose a material based on its on its purpose and a form of course is essentially connected to its purpose and none of them make sense without the final cause so this is when we're talking about what things are for we're talking about their final causes so if we're talking about what humans should do what is the human good we have to think well What's the, comp the comprehensive good of human beings? What are we fundamentally aimed at in life? What is the final cause of our life? And again, this is Aristotle. This is before the Christian tradition, but Aquinas will certainly draw on this and becomes essential to scholasticism. For Aristotle, it's happiness, but we have to be really clear, it's not happiness like we tend to think of happiness. It's eudaimonia is the term in Greek, and it doesn't mean pleasure. So it's not happiness as an, oh, it's a good feeling. I feel so happy today. That's not what he's talking about. It's not a utilitarian concept of happiness. Like, on the whole, I've minimized pain and maximized pleasure in my life. Not what he's talking about. And Aristotle, happiness is not a feeling. It's an action. It's activity. It's a doing. Happiness is defined in Nicomachean ethics. Nicomachean ethics is happiness is the activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. The activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. Virtue being the highest use of our reason and our faculties. It's not a matter of pleasure. It's also not a matter of rules. So this is different from a rule-based uh, program of morality or ethics. You can know the rule, says Aristotle, and not know when to apply it, or not be able to apply it, or, or not realize that that's the right rule for this situation. Virtue is more like, he compares it to knowing how to play a musical instrument. It's in knowing what to do in specific situations and doing it. It's a wisdom that grows through training and habit and practice, like learning how to play the piano. It's about being able to do the right thing to the right person, to the right extent, at the right time, with the right motive, in the right way, right? And it's, it also compares it to archery. You're gonna miss a little, <laughs> but you know what your target is, okay? So knowing this comprehensive good, this comprehensive human good of, of this activity of the soul in accordance with virtue, which is a matter of activity and practice. Um, knowing this for Aristotle, if you want you to know that, then you can say, oh, well, then what is the purpose of, uh, of people? And you know what the purpose of government is. So on the purpose of government, quick quote, this is from the politics. Legislators make the citizens good by forming habits in them. And this is the wish of every legislator and those who do not affect it miss their mark. And it is in this that a good constitution differs from a bad one. Really different idea of the state than we have now. This is the pre-liberal state. It is not neutral as to ends. It exists to promote virtue in the people. Another famous, well, this is more famous, that one wasn't, a famous quote from Aristotle in the politics is, man is a political animal, which doesn't mean he's this power-hungry, you know, person that wants to manipulate things. What he means by that is life and community, political life, is an intrinsic good for humanity, for in human individuals. It's what we are made for. It is necessary to our fulfillment as rational creatures. It wasn't so good about women in this issue, but let's just use men in the generic sense and plow right through that um, lacunae of his. So because man is rational, that's his as the rational soul, right, that we talked about before, and he has speech, <laughs> he is meant to communicate and engage that rationality with others. And virtue, remember, is something that has to be practiced. It's, happiness isn't doing. It's something that has to be actively done, to actively practice using our faculties. So for Aristotle, the city, 
isn't just about sharing, redistributing goods, maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain and, and, and bad things. It's essential to our intrinsic ends as human beings. We're made for this rational life together directed towards virtue and excellence. So we are fully free in this classical tradition. We have liberty when we're deliberating together about the human good, attainable under particular circumstances, with reason, with substantive reason, we're really talking about our ends and what we're here for, and pursuing that good together. That's what liberty looks like in this um, Aristotelian context. So quickly to sum up, the classical political philosophical tradition, the city is for the good of the people. The political entity, the government, whatever, is for the good. It has an end. It's not neutral about ends. The good of the people is fundamentally about virtue. The highest goods available to people are the goods of the soul as opposed to the goods of the wallet or the body. Reason is in the driver's seat. Reason here rules over the passion. So first we come together using reason to ask what is the good? What is our purpose? What is virtue in this context? We don't start by saying, what do we want? What do I feel like? How do we meet the desires? We start by figuring out what the good is. So reasons and reason rules over the passions here. The political community and this is a local political community. Remember, these are small city-states. We're not talking about this enormous empire here. But that's the, the local political community, which is all they had, is natural, and it's intrinsically good. This is not individualistic. The community here is first, and families are the fundamental unit of that community. So it's families, and then groups of families, and then the political unit. There's the individual is not the primary unit of the society. And also, as I mentioned before, it is not pluralistic. It requires a certain amount of agreement about man's fundamental purpose. There is no room here for live and let live, or let's just agree to disagree about the important stuff, or about you know, what counts as important. It's practiced in small, relatively homogenous communities, not huge diverse ones. Okay, so that's that tradition. Then whoop, 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 we skip over many, many years to Thomas Hobbes. Why do we land on Thomas Hobbes? You could also start with Machiavelli, but Thomas Hobbes is the clear breaking point. It's a long time after Aristotle. Thomas Hobbes was born at the moment, actually, that the Spanish Armada was defeating the English Navy. His mother went into premature labor out of fear. He lived from 1588 to 1679, and he writes specifically against Aristotle. So that's how long Aristotle is dominant um, as, a, as a philosopher. So he, you know, through scholasticism, this vision of the political life holds. And then in early modern Europe, that was where the departure was last time, mostly with Descartes, before that with Occam, but, but you know, through Descartes. There's this huge departure at this time in thinking about what we should do and how we live our life together. And Thomas Hobbes, more clearly than anyone else really, elaborates this new conceptual framework that has predominated in modern political thought ever since. And it was an intentional rebellion against Aquinas, against the Catholic philosophical tradition, and against Aristotle as the undergirding um, force in that. So in Hobbes, we see the very beginning of modern liberal political philosophy. Now, I want to be clear here what I mean by liberal. I certainly don't mean a progressive liberal Democrat. If you've ever read any Thomas Hobbes, his book here is called The Leviathan, and he advocates absolute monarchy. <laughs> so this is certainly not liberal in the sense of like he's on the left. Um, not at that at all. What I mean is that you see the first articulation of a modern liberal tradition um, in political philosophy. Think things like individualism, individual rights, natural equality, 
um, the government being founded on consent, and most importantly here, rights, individual rights, come before discussions of the good. So the state is neutral as to ends. The loss of substantive reason in political life. That's, that's, this is the key change. It's really important in his context, the, the major event that makes a big difference here is the Protestant Reformation, which of course, as you know, resulted in horrible religious wars that ravaged Europe. You know, millions and millions of people died, massive chaos. The Reformation is arguably the beginning of the modern era because it introduced the problem of pluralism into the West. That is profound and intractable disagreement about the good. Clashing interpretations of the Bible, a relationship of the ideal relationship between church and state, of the meaning and role of the church, of the function of government, all of this, um, and it's seeming an impossibility of agreement. So as a matter of actual historical fact, the enlightenment in terms of political philosophy began in response to fear, disorder, chaos, and warfare. We already saw this in Descartes, that there's this moment in, in Western history where there's a drive, a, people are consumed by a need, philosophers are consumed by a need for certainty and a need to establish peace in the face of pluralism. And those are related. So this is the age of proof, as opposed to the age of reason, which I talked about last time. Because you need, in order to have something recognized by everyone, so everyone will just stop fighting and killing each other, right? You need to establish something that is certain. So it can be agreed upon by everybody. You can prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt. So you don't have to occupy a similar tradition. You don't have to do all that messy work of hammering out an education and a perspective that can be embraced by everyone. So you can keep what's certain, and only what's certain because it, it will be recognized by everyone. It can be the basis of peace in the face of pluralism. So Wallace is doing kind of in political philosophy what Descartes tried to do in metaphysics. He's trying to put political philosophy for what he thinks is the very first time on a scientific basis to contribute to um, peace. So he hates Aristotle because for two basic reasons. He didn't see any proof there. It seemed like a bunch of you know, overreaching and knowledge and yearning for higher truths, but he's not seeing anything that's like two plus two is four. And he thought it led that scholastic political philosophy, with, with that Aristotelian base to it, led to political instability and rebellion and warfare. Because he thought that when people ponder what the highest human good is, the loftiest possible thing they could aspire to, and link that to political life, you get rebellion and political instability. This is pretty much true in his time because he's looking at radical puritanical religion, right? Which, when it does apply those drives to the state, does result in a lot of rebellion and instability. So people are, Puritans are looking back to the early church and people who love Greek political philosophy are looking back to the city-state, um, to Athens, and he's, Hobbes is saying, look around. Like, none of this is realistic now. The ordered, classical world is gone. So Hobbes is saying this Greek and scholastic idea of a benevolent, orderly nature, this group of hierarchically organized goods is accessible to reason, gone, up in smoke. All that's left are um, these different groups clashing over interpretations of what the Bible teaches government ought to implement to foster the highest good. No one can agree. Um, and the result is chaos and civil war. So what do you do? How do you adjust political philosophy to accommodate pluralism? Well, you don't just lower the bar of the good, you remove it, you drop it. So you remove from civic life entirely the question of the good and build on only what is provable and necessary to everybody. 
So Hobbes is in agreement about with um, Aristotle and Aquinas and on one matter. He does think that if you're going to talk about the truth of what political life, what communal life should be about, you need to start with human nature. Um, which is exactly where Aristotle starts. You first do the ethics, which is about human nature and the human good, and then you build up the politics. But Hobbes has an entirely different understanding of what human nature means for politics and how it sets the standards. This is where he's talking about proof. And he said, the one thing we all share incontrovertibly with each other is desire, is passion. Here's a quote from Hobbes. Whatsoever is the object of any man's appetite or desire, that is it which he, for his part, calls good. And the object of his hate and aversion, evil. And of his contempt, vile and inconsiderable, which means moral relativism, right? That is, if I like it, I call it good. If I want it, I call it good. If it's icky to me, it's evil. So what he's saying, I mean, I love this. You know, we think of moral relativism sometimes as a new idea. There aren't many new ideas. All of these errors have been around quite a long time. So for Hobbes here, every individual sets his own standard of what is good just because of his desires. Um, and reason here, note, cannot be substantive. It is not in the driver's seat. It exists just to serve these passions, these desires for what people want. Desires in the driver's seat, which... It's probably the wrong metaphor because as a consequence of relativism, there's really nowhere to go. Um, there's no such thing as Aristotle's eudaimonia. There's no comprehensive human good. Happiness for Hobbes, it's just success and getting what you want. So this is where that modern understanding of liberty comes in, right? It's getting what you happen to want. And there's no such thing as this sort of tranquility of mind or a state of virtue that will allow you to respond to unfortunate events in life with equanimity and a sense of enduring joy. Life here is in constant motion or change. People's passions and desires propel them from one thing to another, to another, to another, to another, randomly. There's no fixity even in one person. So it's not just that the good is relative. And this is true of all moral relativists. It's not just true that the good is relative to the person. It's relative to the person at any particular moment. So what this means logically is that everyone's after power. And this is true if, when, if you drop substantive reason and use reason just to serve other ends, it ends up being the tool of power. Because if the good and bad are always changing, even for one individual, then the question of ends is totally eclipsed by the question of means. Your, your, your job isn't to just, it, it's not even just to get what you're after to enjoy once, but to assure that all of your future desires will be met. And because those are always shifting, you're looking for a way to be able to get whatever you might want in the future. So Hobbes introduces a totally new conception of power, which is the means to get whatever you might someday want. This would have been utterly foreign in a medieval world and in a classical world because you'd ask power for what? Just like they're all different kinds of pleasure that are not commensurate with each other. They're not, they don't collapse into the same thing. Different kinds of power don't collapse into the same thing. There's the power to win salvation. There's the power to rule. There's the power to win the love of another and so on and so forth. Hobbes is the first to say, Power is just, um, should be conceived of as the force that will allow you to achieve all sorts of unspecified ends. No worries to the ends. They're kind of irrelevant. So it's not stable or enduring either. You always have to be increasing your power, and it's a zero-sum game. What you take, someone else doesn't have. What someone else has, you don't have. So the natural state of mankind, then, is a war of all against all. And that's, that's the famous quote from Hobbes. Um, Every person's life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So why am I going into all this? What is the basis then for political community 
if life is this horrid? Because we can't agree about the good. It's not about the good. It's about the evil. It's about getting away from the deepest, most, the worst possible evil, which for Hobbes, given what the state of nature is like, evil for him is violent death at the hands of another. That's the only thing that's absolutely evil that everybody fears. So that's what you build on. You start there. So Aristotle starting with human excellence. You know, what is the highest achievement of humanity? The liberal political philosophical tradition starts with what is the worst thing that can happen to you? And for Hobbes, who, by the way, is an atheist, it's a violent death at the hands of another human being. So then everyone will get together and agree, like, I will not, I'll stop, you know, taking everything, I'll stop stealing and pillaging, <laughs> if you will, and I know you will, because we're going to put someone over both of us that will really punish us if we, do, if, we, if we screw up. So we're going to make a really powerful state so we can all just get along um, and renounce, renounce our rights to everything. So that's a Leviathan. So to sum this up, the relevant departure here is the right replaces the good. What the ultimate guide of political action isn't seeking for what the good is. It's just securing the rights we need in order to get on with life. Two, legitimate authority is not honorific. It's not based on excellence. Instead of picking rulers because they have the excellence of some sort, even a democracy in Aristotle, the excellence there is, um, is that there are many there's strength in numbers, right? Or perhaps it's a virtuous aristocracy, an aristocracy chosen for virtue. But in any case, there's some principle, there's some telos, there's some principle of excellence that determines who will rule. Here, no, there are no politically relevant forms of excellence. Everyone is equal before the state, with regard to the state. And in three, it's individualistic. Politics aren't natural. Political participation is no longer necessary as a source of human fulfillment. It's just a job someone has to do so we can get on with life, which is about private pursuits. So the state exists now to protect what really is natural, which is the desiring human individual. So the individual, not the family, is the basic unit. An individual stands directly before the state as individuals. And the state and the law are external to them. They're not a, the law isn't about shaping or transforming the individual. It's just keeping peace amongst them so they can do whatever they want that the law doesn't speak to. So the little problem with this is that it's unpalatable. No one's going to quote Hobbes in their Declaration of Independence. It's icky sounding. And he's an atheist, and he tries to cover it up, but everyone you know, it's pretty obvious. But ours does quote someone else, basically. Our Declaration of Independence has an awful lot of John Locke in it. And John Locke really is the most influential modern philosopher period, certainly modern political philosopher. And what's interesting about Locke, we sort of think of Locke as a totally different beast than Hobbes. And he did disagree with Hobbes about a lot of stuff. He didn't want an absolute monarchy. And he thought that for Hobbes, like morality is just an invention of the state. There's no natural morality. He's a pure materialist and atheist. Locke wanted there to be certain moral truths that were natural that reason could reveal to us. So there are all these major disagreements. But despite them, Locke is a liberal in much the same sense as Hobbes. He, he takes a lot from Hobbes. So he believes, like with Hobbes, that government's based on the consent of individuals. He talks about the state of nature, you know, to understand how that consent takes place. He also, like Hobbes, abandons talk of the good for talk of rights. So he was writing 40 years after Hobbes, and what he does is rejects Hobbes' political solution, but on the basis of those principles. And he's trying to find a middle ground. And the, way, the reason I bring this up is Locke is kind of the foundation of our polity philosophically. So if, there, if that middle ground is possible, 
and it's enduring, we're good. <laughs> but if that middle ground is a little bit uh, unstable, that has a lot of implications for our current political, you know, our, the American political experiment. So here's the middle ground problem. If you go the way of Hobbes, this is you know, pure you know, atheistic materialism undergirding liberal political, liberal political philosophy, then everything is artifice. Morality is artificial and political life is artificial. It's all invented. All that's natural individuals and their desires. If you go that way, you end up with Leviathan because there is nothing but power. So you end up not being able to establish a democracy. But if you go the way of Aristotle and Aquinas and the scholastic tradition, the medieval philosophical tradition, you say both are, both are natural. And morality is natural and the state is natural. Then you have a hard time arguing for things like the case for revolution, a right to revolution, individual rights, um, government based on consent, and you have a hard time accommodating pluralism. So Locke wants to split the difference. He wants to make morality natural, but the state a product of artifice. So he's arguing that, yeah, we are free and equal by nature, but it's not like Hobbes's state of nature, where it's just an ugly, nasty free-for-all. We have some basic moral obligations we can access through reason whether or not we're in a civil society with one another, whether or not we have a government. So morality doesn't base, isn't just based on contract. It's not a product of human convention. But it's a little weird how he gets at this. And the reason I mentioned this is this, um, I think, resonates in our current political climate. Locke is not an atheist and a materialist like Hobbes, but he's also not Aristotelian. So he totally rejects the idea of natural law. He rejects the idea that there are knowable essences and natures and final ends out there for, for reason to discover that that, that, is, that is an essential part of reality. He thinks the mind is just a blank slate. And like Occam, he thought that all you had was sense experience or revelation to build on. So he rejects scholastic metaphysics. He also rejects what was in Descartes, that sense of innate ideas, the idea that you have a conscience, that they're just ideas that are just in your mind. You are born with certain ideas in your head that are a clue to reality. For instance, moral rules in your conscience. So he's talking about um, the law of nature, but it's not the sense of, um, it's not about the nature of what is. The law of nature, natural rights here are, are not about the conscience and they're not about knowable natural ends. So he wants to have natural law, natural rights without any of the classical Christian conception of nature and reason, without final ends, without essences, I'm inhering in human beings or anything out there. So he wants rights without natural law. And I think that's interesting because in, we're in a climate now where people talk about rights a lot. And they're even developing rights. But we're also in a climate where people don't talk about human nature. So it's hard to see what is, why we have rights. Like what, what is undergirding their rights? I want to open that up again to when people talk about rights, when you think about human rights, what's their basis? Well, it's kind of funny because they do talk about it as if it's undergirded by the Ten Commandments is the easiest thing to point to, right? Don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, blah, blah, blah. But to your point, that has no basis in anything. There is no reason for that. If, if what I want is to be Jeff Bezos and take over the world, sure, I should lie and cheat, steal and trick and do whatever I need to do, right? It's, you know, it's only illegal if you catch me. <laughs> yeah, it might account for somebody rampant cheating that I hear is going on in high schools across the country these days. <laughs> um, it might. So I was just gonna say, Audrey also said it's what they want. <laughs> 
Right. So, but it's interesting. It's a universalized, like it's talk that sounds transcend, transcendental. I mean, transcendent of human, of human individuals. It's, it sounds like something enduring and lasting and inscribed somewhere on stone, but it's always changing. And it seems to be something having to, that's something that's based in human desire. So that's interesting. It, it's, it's raised the question, can there be a middle ground like Locke is trying to establish um, where you have human rights, but you've given up on a concept of human nature, of what people are for. Locke does it by invoking revelation, interestingly. So he says, our, law, our rights come to us not because of human some sort of human nature, but they come from the only being who does have rights by nature, who's God. And we have rights because we are God's property. And since God made us and God owns us, we can't harm another or hinder their realization of God's purposes for them that we know through revelation because doing so would be violating God's property rights. Like we are God's, so you, you know, and, and your neighbor belongs to God, so you can't go over and, and take his stuff and kill him. Which is interesting, but of course that doesn't hold up anymore. You can't just go, oh, revelation, so end of conversation. Um, so we speak of human rights in our own culture, but without belief in essences or natures. Not, there's nothing natural about these rights and that they're not rooted in nature, nor are they rooted in reason applied to revelation as with Locke. So it's hard to say where they come from and why we should have them. So to look at this, um, it's going to help very briefly before I get to the end here, to turn to John Rawls. John Rawls is often spoken of, this is R-A-W-L-S, as the most important political philosopher of the last century. He died not too long ago. If you take a college class at most universities on political philosophy, it will end with Rawls. As if, you know, he always gets the final word, and a lot of political philosophy being done just assumes a framework from Rawls. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but it's, a, it's an interesting piece of the puzzle. Like Hobbes and Locke, because he's still in that same tradition, Rawls has a state of nature kind of argument to establish consent, how it is that we consent to be governed, how it is we consent to our life together um, in the absence of joining together to pursue a common end. But consent isn't enough for him um, because we all come to that place from different perspectives with different advantages and different interests, which he thinks creates inequity. So he imagines going back to what he calls the original position, and you can you know, enter into this imaginatively at any point. And from this original position, you're behind what he calls a veil of ignorance. So you know nothing about who you are. You don't know what advantages or disadvantages you have. You don't know if you're male, female, rich, poor, educated, high school dropout, um, coming from a stable family or coming from a broken and abusive family. You know nothing about yourself. So if you came together with a bunch of other people behind this veil of ignorance, what principles would you agree to? What sort of polity would you form? And he says two things. Well, first, you would have, you would agree on basic liberties for all, you know, rights to freedom of speech, freedom of religion, whatever. And you'd have, this is just an aside because it's interesting, something called the difference principle, which means you'd only tolerate social and economic inequality if it served the interests of the least well-off. So like maybe hedge fund managers shouldn't be pulling in billions of dollars, but you might, for instance, allow doctors to make a pretty good living because it would allow for there to be more doctors, which would serve the interests of the poor. Um, so Rawls thinks that you can basically boil all talk of justice down to this sort of um, what if, which is about fairness. Justice boils down to fairness. So to determine what's just, you don't need to talk about what's good. You don't need to talk about what, what our purpose is. The self is prior to ends. As human beings, for Rawls, we're defined first by our capacity for choice, not our ends as human beings. The ends you can just shelve and still have a full conversation about justice. So rights here, 
are derived contractually. They don't have to have a basis in nature or a basis in God. They're just derived by determining what we would want if we put ourselves in that original position behind the veil of ignorance. We legislate, uh, ideally, as totally autonomous moral agents, independent of any given ends or duties or attachments or identity. Rawls is in the tradition of Kant. I know this is a lot of philosophy. I talked about Kant last time as the guy that said, you know, we can't know the thing in itself. We can only know what we can perceive as part of experience. So we can't really reason about things like the afterlife and God. We might need to have those beliefs, but we can't reason about them. That was Kant. Kant also had this really important idea where he based moral reasoning um, on the categorical imperative, um, which is act only according to that maxim, that rule, whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. So to act morally here is to self-legislate in a way that everyone would agree. Now, so to figure out what's moral, to figure out what's right, you don't have to rely on what everyone else thinks is right. So it's not relative to your culture. Nor though, should you, do you have to determine what everyone should accept in an ideal world. Rather, you just step away from all your particular inclinations and habits and interests and intuitions to seek terms that everyone can accept no matter what they believe. This is a recipe for getting along without having to agree. And this is in a sense genius. We have to stop and acknowledge the amazing power of this idea. I think it's hard to imagine that a person in a country where Christians or members of any other religion are regularly attacked and murdered wouldn't find this idea very attractive. This is an idea that has brought countless people to this country, not Rawls specifically, but this idea that we can establish a basic fair framework in which we can get along without agreeing um, to final ends. People have come here for many, many years, right, to find a place, not where the Puritans came, but uh, later generations, to find a place where they could be safe and live out their lives without, without having to find their place in a constitutive, constitutive community that demands deep moral and religious agreement and gets rid of or punishes people who don't agree. And I think without the real existence of that agreement, we'd all best be liberals in this sense, lest we be persecuted. So I, I don't want to argue against liberalism, period, because I think many places in the world today need a lot more of this. Um, it's a time of great Christian persecution. But I also want to say, and this is why this isn't the easy talk where like this is the obvious answer. It's also true, though, um, that there's a danger here to our souls. The liberal conception of the state and the liberal conception of the, individ of the individual are intertwined. So if we fully accept this liberal definition of the state, the state you know, being neutral as to ends, just existing to, be, to establish fairness, we can all live out our lives as individuals, we can become inclined to accept the liberal conception of the individual, which we saw starting back with Hobbes, which is a morally incapacitating and incorrect one. So for Kant, for Rawls, we determine how we should live, both as individuals and as a society, without any consideration of our, of our particular attachments. We approach each other and our own moral decisions as autonomous and detached individuals. Now, if we, keep, if we start to, because we live in a liberal state that is neutral as to ends and that creates the possibility for us to think about, to think about ourselves in, these, in this way, we end up, I think, augmenting our own self-conception as autonomous and isolated and self-legislating. We begin to identify being human with being free from whatever we didn't choose, even when that's being male or female, for instance. 
We worship the individual will, the choosing self, and we reject whatever would limit that self. And obviously this weakens communities and institutions and leaves us isolated. And ironically, it, need, it leaves us in need of a strong state to clean up the resulting mess. The weak families, the weak communities, the individuals shorn of the constraints of human wisdom that's handed down in tradition from generation to generation and lacking the virtues that are born of habits that require communal support. You know, we cannot establish excellent patterns and habits of virtue without strong families and communities and churches that support those practices. And even more fundamentally, it doesn't make sense of moral life. And here I'm borrowing, borrowing from a wonderful philosopher who, for those of you who love to read slightly dense philosophy, please read Alistair MacIntyre After Virtue. It's one of the very best books of philosophy, period. This is from Alistair MacIntyre. We cannot begin to make sense of our moral lives if we conceive of ourselves as autonomous, self-legislating individuals, because we live our lives as narrative quests. We are Frodo, Lord of the Rings. We answer the question, what should I do, by first answering the question, what story am I part of? And how does this decision, this option or this option, make sense of that story? So to live a good life is to enact what he calls this narrative quest. It's a story that aspires to unity and coherence and meaningfulness. Moral deliberation, deciding what I should and shouldn't do, where a community should and shouldn't do, is more about interpreting stories than it is about exerting will. So when I make a decision, it's more about interpreting my story um, that it is about exerting my will. I can only make sense of the story of my life, the narrative of my life, by coming to terms with the stories in which I find myself. So that's what integrity means, McIntyre is saying, to live your life so that your story makes sense. It's meaningful, it, it's, it's good, it's purposeful. And from a Christian perspective, you live your life so that your life becomes a harmonious and beautiful part of the story, the only lasting story, the story with no end, the one that makes possible all other stories and gives them their meaning, the story of God himself entering into his divine life. Two things about stories, and I'm almost done. One, they have a telos, they have a purpose. They involve a conception of a good, what a good ending looks like, what needs to happen to this character to get through this crisis, to the good ending. And two, they don't begin and end with an individual. Your story doesn't begin and end with you. You find yourself in a story. You never, your stories are never about you as just a purely autonomous individual. You bear identities. You're someone's son or daughter. You're a citizen of this or that place. You're a member of this or that profession. Everyone's story in which they live out their moral life is particular. And it links them to what came before them and what will go after them in ways that they often can't choose. So the point here McIntyre is making, amongst many other points, we don't become better when we stop telling and interpreting those stories for each other and become autonomous selves choosing without any particularity. We become worse, much worse, because our moral life is lived out of, it is motivated by, is made sense of in particularity. Which means, if you buy into this narrative conception of morality and the self, that we can't enter into our shared life together as autonomous individuals who agree to ignore the conception of the good. To talk about life together is to determine what sort of story we're telling, what sort of story we're living together. What is the story of our country? How do we interpret the story of our nation or our city or our family or our neighborhood? And you can't do that while maintaining a liberal neutrality about that story's meaning, direction, and end. 
And also, if we look around, as a side note, we can tell that neutrality as to ends or rejecting substantive reason in our life together isn't working out so well. I don't know if you've noticed lately, but our political order isn't exactly thriving. Now, it did really well for a long time, but that's largely because the liberal neutral state relied on the persistence of social norms. The founders of our country assumed that the republic would require strong churches, strong families, and strong local communities. So liberalism got all the good stuff that it gets. It gets you know, freedom from conflict and freedom, not conflict in terms of I disagree with you, but freedom from you know, massive persecution and warfare. But it runs on fuel it can't provide. And furthermore, it actually weakens the sources of that fuel. And that fuel, strong families, religion, strong local communities, a shared pursuit of God and of virtue is necessary for our survival and our flourishing as human beings. So what do we do? This is certainly not an argument for revolution. <laughs> it's just a rec argument, I think, for recognizing that the tacit understanding of your moral personhood put forth by our current political philosophical assumptions is injurious and it needs to be rejected. We build strong communities and churches and families by accepting our moral particularity. That doesn't mean you have to accept all the moral traditions before you. It means that you come out of them and you can critique them. They're yours. Um, you're contributing to the story. Um, but we begin by accepting that particularity and interpreting our stories together and training ourselves in virtue. Now, to return to what I said in the beginning, I do not know how to reconcile this fundamental human need with pluralism. I don't know how to begin to do this work at a national level, for instance. I don't know that it's possible. That's a complicated question. But I do think it's absolutely necessary to do it on the most local level possible. This is one of why in the reading suggestions here, one of them is the Benedict option. Um, this is a lot, uh, Rodri, I think would agree with me that um, we're coming to a place where we can't do some of our most fundamental work that is in building virtue and, and building a Christian life on a national level on a large political scale. So to live good lives, to be right about who we are as human beings, to, to fully use our reason, to make sense of the world and pursue the common good, we have to work against the grain these days. We have to work, not just go with the flow. So again, I think I referred to this last time, this involves forming intentional smaller communities that aren't based on individual autonomy, but on a shared life together that limits us at times and allows us to pursue true human liberty. Um, and I'm gonna stop there and open for questions. Thank Thanks. you so much, Molly. That was wonderful. While everyone is uh, thinking of questions, uh, Teresa had asked if you could repeat uh, Aristotle's definition of happiness, the activity of the soul. Yes, it is the activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. And that implies that part of that is that um, human reason is our highest capacity, right? And reasoning about what we should do and who we are is the highest use of that reason. So happiness is the fulfillment of our highest powers in accordance with virtue. And that is this, the full acting out of reason in a virtuous life. It's true in other parts of Aristotle, it's contemplation. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a confusion there, but in... Um, and a lot of Aristotle is this acting out of what it means to be fully human. Sure. Thank you. Michelle, did you have a question? Sister Michelle? The happiness, you know, in um, Matthew, where, where it has the Beatitudes, blessed mm -hmm. are the poor in spirit. Well, in some translation, it's happy of the poor in spirit. Has that definition you get have something to do with how they understood that? Yes, um, blessedness, it's not exactly the same word, but it's a very similar conception to eudaimonia. It's not pleasure, obviously. 
mean, that wouldn't make sense with the Beatitudes at all. And many of those yeah. states are states of what we think of as unhappiness, like blessed are those who mourn. As far as I understand that blessedness, like it, 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 is, it is good to be that person. There are good things coming to them and there's a deep indwelling sense of enduring joy that they are getting at the heart of what it means to be human. They have access to something that other people might not have. And that's very similar to eudaimonia. It's getting at the heart of what it means to be human. And it's something that Aristotle does say there are things that can happen to destroy human beings' happiness. Um, but that if you have that, that happiness, it's based on activity and the full use of reason and your human capacities, you're more likely to weather storms. You're more likely to come out okay. So it doesn't have that full Christian conception because he's missing the redemptive value of suffering. So in the Christian perspective adds that essential ingredient that can make sense of human vulnerability. So it's not just a bad thing, right? That by linking our suffering to that of Christ, we are joining in the redemption of the world and building to the glory of God that we'll experience in the life to come. So there's another piece added in the Beatitudes that's essential and is not present just in the philosophical tradition. There's a question actually uh, carried over from last week. Diana was wondering, what are the key concepts of this field of knowledge that could be retained to continue personal growth, not just academic study? The parts of this that are about personal growth? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, how, how can we take this and apply this? Right, no, that's what I'm trying to do. So to, to, to make sure, I mean, because um, when we join, I think, this is what I was trying to get at, um, maybe I didn't get there, but when we join in our political life together, um, we often have a sense that we have to table all of our deepest concerns um, in order to do that because we don't, we can't all agree out there about the existence of God, about what the good looks like, about what it means to be a good human person, about the point of human life and all kinds of things. So there's a temptation to sort of eh, just kind of shelve that and come into any common pursuit as this person without any particular attachments, um, which might be necessary at times but it's bad for us. <laughs> so my point is to, um, to not therefore like let that self, that modern liberal political self become an, in any sense, your actual self. So to develop and pursue, because it, we live in a, a state that does isolate us and, and does weaken families and does weaken local communities. I mean, it used to be, you know, communities would solve problems by gathering together. Um, and that happens less and less with a stronger and stronger state. So, it is an argument for pursuing those deep attachments, pursuing um, traditions and relationships that do provide limits, that do provide a particular tradition for you, and rejecting that, that image of the isolated individual as normal in human life. It is not normal. Um, it's bizarre, and it, is, it does not allow us to fulfill our nature as human beings. So uh, listening to that yearning for something more and, and acting on it. And this is um, outlined in the Benedict Option, and and Leila Bresco wrote a book on enacting the Benedict Option, and there's some ideas there too. For, you know, reach out to your neighbor. In your neighborhood, get to know all of your neighbors. Pursue common activities together. Live near people in your church. Um, invite people in your church over. Start living life together. That's something that is natural to human beings and that it is necessary for our human fulfillment that we're not, we tend not to do because of this liberal conception of who we are and who the state is and how it is that we should interact together. Just this, you know, individual units that go out to get um, what we need and then come back into our little individual units. It's an argument for, yeah, okay, there are reasons we have to act like that because we can't agree about everything in a larger scale, but in a smaller scale, we can do a lot better than that. And to make sacrifices for each other and build, build strong communities to the extent possible around ourselves, which you can start by getting to know your neighbor. 
um, getting to, you know, having deeper conversations, um, being awkward enough <laughs> to take those first steps um, to develop those, those deeper communities. Wonderful. Thank you. I know um, if someone was asking, how do we bring this to our culture? It seems like such a heavy, heavy lift. And I think you, you answered that really, really well. We have uh, one more question here that I think I'll ask and we'll finish on this. Is subsidiary rooted in Aristotle? Yes, yes. So subsidiary, I don't know if it's actually like literally rooted in Aristotle, but it is certainly rooted in that scholastic tradition that emerges from Aristotle. Um, and it is rooted in that sense that you know, things should be done on the most local level possible because that's where the interest is, that's where the motivation is, um, and that is where the knowledge of how best to get it done is. So it's, it's a very practical and beautiful concept. It just seems so intuitively obvious. So I think it's interesting that everyone isn't a fan of subsidiarity. I mean, that says a lot about the liberal elevation of the central state being this neutral and therefore uncomplicated way to work things out that allows us to still be atomized individuals and not do the hard work of knocking on doors and figuring things out on a local level. So yeah, it's a, yeah, it is a beautiful concept that does emerge from um, that tradition that I guess, I mean, it's not, Aristotle's not talking about that, but it does come out of that tradition. All right. Thank you so much, Molly. That was a wonderful study um, for the past couple of weeks. So thank you all. And thank you again, Dr. Molly Oshatz. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good night, everyone. Good night. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.